Jim, welcome. Thank you, Paulina. Are you excited for this fireside chat? Yes. I, so I didn't know where we could build a fire in the middle of August. So I came to my glass studio and literally I've got a 2000 degree furnace with an open flame in there and we've got a fire. Not next to me, but like literally right over there. You have a fire going right now. I have a fire right going there. We're going to be blowing glass this afternoon. That's amazing. Hope you have a great AC in there. It's, 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 it's the way you stay thin in August. So start from the beginning. How does an owner of a glass blowing studio co-found a mobile payments startup? So actually Square started in this very building. Uh, I was trying to sell a piece of glass, and one of the things you see behind me, uh, to a lady who only had an American Express card, and I lost the sale because I couldn't take the payment. Now at the time, uh, Jack Dorsey and I had already decided to start another company, and we were kicking around for ideas. So when I lost that sale, it became the idea for Square. So. In your new book, The Innovation Stack, you talk about getting Square off the ground using a business strategy also called The Innovation Stack. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so first of all, we had no idea that there was this thing called an innovation stack. The only reason I found out about it was later after Square was attacked by Amazon and we survived, um, I had to sort of piece together what had happened. But at the time, what we did was we were trying to enable small merchants like myself to get paid. And it turned out this was a really difficult problem because everything from the way the credit card systems work to the banks to the regulations basically prohibited small merchants from having the same access that big guys did. So when we tried to solve that problem, we had to invent a bunch of new stuff, and that's what became our innovation stack. And that's what basically allowed Square to survive. Very cool. So hold on. So let's back up. So you create Square. Everything is going well. You're helping small business owners. And then Amazon comes in hot with copying your product, undercutting you on price, and offering live customer support, which you didn't have at the time. How do you survive? So we didn't know. I mean, the first thing we did was uh, we looked for other companies that had survived Amazon, because when Amazon does this to a startup, the startup always gets obliterated. And so we looked, and we couldn't find any other companies that had survived this. So we looked at what we could do to respond to Amazon, and there really wasn't that much that we could do differently. So in the end, we didn't do anything differently, and we just kept going for about a year, and then Amazon relented. And at the end of that year, Amazon was really cool, and they actually mailed uh, one of these little square readers to all their former customers. So they were really cool about the way they got out of the business, but it was terrifying when they attacked us. Wow. So there's, there's a bigger lesson in all of this. In your book, you write, a startup fighting a, any tech giant is like a kid dressed as a soldier fighting an actual soldier. Can you elaborate on that idea and give a specific example of where that played out? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can't tell you how, how chilling it was uh, to find out that Amazon is attacking you as a, as a startup. It's, it's, like, it's like the doctor coming in with this like frown on his face saying, well, we, Mr. McKelvey, you need to sit down and maybe gather your family around or something like that. It's just, it was so terrifying. Um, and we, we wanted to respond in some way, but there wasn't anything to do. Um, what we didn't know at the time, however, was that because we had built this thing called an innovation stack, which is exceedingly difficult to copy, um, that we were actually protected from Amazon. And, and what happened was um, we just went on our business and uh, didn't even lower our price. We didn't even try to match Amazon on price. But because of all the things that we were doing that Amazon couldn't copy, we were protected. Well, what are some of those things that Amazon could not copy? So there were a bunch of things that Square was doing differently. And uh, in the book, I 
list about 14 things that Square was doing differently. And um, the trick to this is understanding how that how those 14 things evolve. It's not, it's not some sort of checklist where you do thing one, thing two, thing three. What you're doing is you're progressively trying to solve a problem, but it's a special type of problem. It's a problem that hasn't been solved before. So you have to invent, you have to try new things. And a lot of those new things don't work. And a lot of the things that do work cause other problems that then have to be solved. So this creates this sort of interwind mess of innovation. And that's what becomes the innovation stack. And so I couldn't pick it apart and say, this one thing or this other thing was what stopped Amazon. But collectively, what I've noticed is not just for Square, but through companies throughout the world, uh, these innovation staffs are incredibly protective. Yeah. So Amazon wasn't your only problem. You also founded Square in the midst of the last recession. Um, as the world grapples with a global pandemic and a potentially a very severe economic downturn. What are some of the similarities you're seeing in the landscape now? So it's interesting because I studied companies throughout history. And one of the parallels that I noticed was that for some reason, almost all of these companies had some giant catastrophe. So for instance, the biggest bank in the world was founded by somebody who A, knew nothing about banking and B, started it outside of the banking center, uh, which at the time was New York. And he started his bank in San Francisco. And then he started a year before the great San Francisco earthquake. So literally the city shook and then burned to the ground. And that's when he started his company. Um, and so, yeah, we started Square back in 2008, 2009 at the at sort of the depth of the last recession. Uh, there are a lot of people feeling pain right now um, because of COVID-19. But I think what's probably happening is that during good times, when everything is working well, we tend to stick with what's what we're used to. We're not, we're not looking for new things when everything's working well. But in times of chaos, when things are not working, then we're searching for new ways to do things. So we're doing this over Zoom. So there's all sorts of innovation and we're living through some of it even as we speak. Yeah. So some of the most important companies were founded during the last recession. And what would you say to founders who are thinking of starting a business now? It's a great time to start a business during a recession. Uh, you have more access to resources. Uh, people who would normally not be able to talk to you are able to talk to you because they're, they're not that busy. Um, there's just a lot of disruption. And it's not that necessarily you're not you're going to have an easier path. It's that the rest of the world is going to be slowed down a little bit, that you won't be as relatively disadvantaged. Got it. Yeah. And I, I feel like in times of constraint, creativity kind of prevails. Um, so you had the idea for Square because you were trying to solve a very real problem that you yourself were having. As a business, as an aspiring entrepreneur, how do I know if my outlandish idea can truly become a real solid business? So if you honestly have an outlandish idea, there's no guarantee that it's going to work. But if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, so let's differentiate between outlandish ideas, the, the crazy stuff that's new, and your people, your friends will call you crazy, and the stuff that's been done before. If you're just copying a business, then you should copy one that works and copy from people who've been successful. But if you've got an outlandish idea, there is no guarantee. And one of the things that's so frustrating is that we've been taught to have a guarantee. Like you're raised from school, um, you know, through basically all your relationships to, you know, have a plan, know that it's going to work. Don't take that risk. And if you're doing something new, by definition, you don't know if it's going to work. 
Yeah. So did people ever call you crazy when you told them about Square? Oh, yeah. Like everybody. I mean, not, you know, Jack and I were sort of solid on it. And, and Jack and I agreed that we wanted to start a company in the middle of a recession. Um, but, you know, family members looked at me funny. Friends looked at me funny. Nobody knew I was moving out. And, and, and that's, just, that's just good behavior. I mean, people who love you, people who want to protect you are going to naturally uh, tell you not to do things that they think are risky. And unless they see a pattern where, oh, you're doing what these other companies have done and been successful, if they don't see you that you're on a path that's already been walked, they're going to tell you not to take it. How important is it to be adaptable and to be flexible as an entrepreneur? It's a very difficult question to answer because in one sense, you have to be rigid. You have to be sort of stubbornly determined to do what you want to do, but you don't have a guarantee that what you want to do is possible. So you have to have somehow the will to keep going, but in the same time, uh, life and COVID-19 and your employees and the government are going to be dealing you uh, setbacks and problems, and then Amazon's going to attack you. So, so you have to be flexible and sort of rigid at the same time. It's a weird balance. And all I can say to aspiring entrepreneurs is you better care about what you're doing. You better deeply want to solve the problem you're trying to solve, because if you don't, you're probably going to quit. Yeah. So that that's interesting because you were trying to solve a problem that you yourself had as a business owner. How reliant were you on market research and customer feedback in the early days? And how did that evolve over time? Okay. So Square did zero customer research except for me. And we had zero customer feedback except for me. So I basically went to Jack and I said, look, this is what I want. And Jack said, well, that was interesting. And so we built the first product for me and then we got it working. And then we um, immediately found a flower vendor, vendor who was uh, selling flowers in front of Jack's apartment. And we gave the second version to her. Then we found a, <laughs> a Russian stunt pilot and he got the third uh, reader. And, and then we started listening to them. But that was really the beginning. There was no market research. But, but again, here's that's, that's, that's that sneaky guarantee. Like the whole reason you do market research is to know with certainty that if you build this, people are going to buy it. Well, well, what if you're building something that hasn't been built before? If you're building something truly new, the market research is going to be just useless. I mean, it's going to be a laugh because you can't study something that doesn't exist yet. And what we were doing at Square was unlike anything else. What they did at IKEA was unlike anything else. What Bank of Italy did in banking was unlike anything else. And there's no focus group for that. So from an outsider's perspective, you need very specific skills and experiences to build a company like Square has become. Did you, one, first of all, did you have those skills and experiences necessary to build Square at the time? So, I mean, I guess we had the skills and experiences necessary to build Square because we ended up building Square successfully, but we had no expertise in payments, okay? So one of the things that Jack and I didn't know at all was the payments industry. I knew what the problem was. I knew what it was like to be a merchant trying to sell stuff and not get paid. But what I didn't know, understand was banking regulations, OFAC, KYC. I didn't understand how the credit card systems work. I didn't understand the mechanics of reading a credit card. There were all these things that we didn't know, but turns out you can learn that. Yeah, and so you've said before, what has stopped me so many times before was this feeling of inexperience that I lacked the expertise to do what needed to be done. A lot of aspiring entrepreneurs feel this way. How do you shift your mindset? So there's a time you should feel incompetent. There's a time you should feel unqualified. And that's when you're doing something that's truly new. 
And this is the difference between an entrepreneur and a regular business person. An entrepreneur is going to find that edge where society has not solved the problems and walk past it. And at that point, you're not qualified. You're not qualified to do it. But the fact is that nobody on the planet is qualified, and yet somebody is still going to have to do that. So, so the example I always use is the Wright brothers. Um, Orville and Wilbur Wright were not qualified to fly the first airplane because mankind had not flown before. Now, if I want to go be a pilot today, I get trained, I get tested, I have to pee in a cup, and they test it, and you're like the FAA has to certify me. Like there's a lot of testing that goes on. That's not possible when you're the first. So you can't be qualified to do something new. You can only be the person who does it. So how do you get over that feeling of, oh my God, I feel so insecure because I don't have the expertise in payments? I have no idea. I feel the same way every time. And I should have a little more experience because I've done it you know, probably five or six times now. But every time I go into a new field where I don't have expertise, all my training, all my education kicks in and I start feeling like, oh, I can't, I can't be doing this. I, can't, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, now, knowing that you might feel that way is a little bit helpful, um, but it's sort of like Houdini. Houdini used to um, you know, do these escapes underwater, and so he would take cold showers to prepare himself for being thrown in a river. Well, I'm sorry, taking a cold shower in your house is a lot different than having your you know, arms bound, locked in a box, and thrown in the Cuyahoga River. You know? So yeah, you can prepare for it a little bit and know that it's coming, but ultimately you just have to jump. So obviously Square today looks much different than it did in 2008, 2009. It's larger, it's more ambitious, it's just a different company. How much of what it is today was part of your original vision? So, so that's really the nature of entrepreneurship. You don't have any idea how big your market is if your market is new. So if you're building something that hasn't been built before, how many people want it? Well, at Square, we had no idea if there'd be millions of people. It turns out there were, but that wasn't like we had this great plan. And here we are 11 years later, um, things are going very, very well for Square. I would say we have two or three separate innovation stacks that are driving different parts of the business. Um, but that's all something that's happened on the fly. And we've had to be you know, very responsive to our customers, listen to them. A lot of them will tell you good ideas, but occasionally you have to come up with an idea that nobody's thought of and just build it and see if they react. Yeah. How was it working with Jack? How did you guys understand whose strengths and weaknesses were appropriate at which time? So, I mean, I've known Jack since he was 15. He used to work with me at another company that I still have. And uh, we've been friends for, you know, 20 years plus. So it was really easy. Um, Jack was, uh, you know, he, he just left Twitter for the first time. He had nothing to do. We were literally in this studio uh, talking about what we could do together. And he said, well, why don't we start a company together? And I thought, well, that was cool because I always had fun working with Jack in the old days. And I thought it'd be fun. Um, and, you know, the sort of balance uh, is really good because um, Jack's a very quiet person. Um, I'm not. Uh, uh, Jack's actually a very good programmer. I'm sort of a terrible coder, but I like building things with my hands. So it was natural that he did the software and I did the hardware. Um, and, and also Jack wanted to be a manager and I hate management. So Jack, you know, was the CEO and I was this sort of, you know, handyman. How important is it to have a co-founder? Having a partner for me is everything because uh, I am a, actually a terrible manager. So uh, if, if I have a skill set, it's basically starting companies, but I'm lousy at running them. So every time uh, before I start a new company, I always have to partner up with somebody who's got good management skills. How many companies have you started? Oh, probably seven or eight. I mean, some of them are nonprofit. Some of them are uh, charitable. Some of them are, uh, you know, for profit. I, I, 
I use companies as basically as vehicles for solving problems. And sometimes I, uh, I need a company as a, as a system to attack a problem. So I usually partner up and start a company. You once did a talk called The Greatest Lies of Success, in which you talked about some of the biggest lies that entrepreneurs believe. And one of those lies is ship great products. And you say that actually being fast and good is better than being perfect in shipping the greatest product ever. Can you talk about some of those lies? Yeah, so um, uh, there's this idea that uh, the product has to be perfect. And I see this particularly among craftsmen and engineers, and I'm, I'm sort of guilty of it myself, which is that you don't want to send it out the door. You could make it better, you could make it better, you could make it better. Um, but at some point, you have to get the product into the hands of customers and see if they'll tolerate it, even though it's not perfect. Um, so I, I basically went through a lot of um, uh, sort of reprogramming in my own head after, after Square because there were certain things that I believed were sacrosanct, and it turns out that I lived through the opposite experience. And one of the things I thought uh, was that you should believe experts, that experts were super valuable because, you know, I was trained as an engineer, and in, engineer, in engineering, we tend to, you know, follow a lot of uh, people who've been there before us. It turns out not always the case. And so in, uh, in starting Square, what we realized was that a lot of the people who we thought were experts and who, in fact, had credentials in uh, their field uh, were actually giving us exactly the wrong advice. So we hired this one guy from MasterCard, and it turns out that the only thing of value we got from him was when he told us to do something, we do the opposite. That's amazing. As a serial entrepreneur, is there a gap in the market or any sort of opportunity you see in the next five or 10 years where you'd love to see more innovation? Yeah, so I, I sort of outlined this in the book. Um, and it's, it's what happened with Square, it's what happened with Ikea, it's what's happened with Bank of America, which became the biggest bank in the world. It's what happened with a bunch of companies that have ended up sort of dominating their field. And it's a really simple formula, um, which is you look at a market and you try to find where the market ends. So uh, you take the market for cars, right? Uh, you really can't buy a car for less than $15,000, like a new car, you can get a used car. But like if you want a new car, about 15 grand, at least in the US, that's, that's sort of where it stops. And what if we could make a car for 2,000 bucks, like a new car for 2,000 bucks? Would that open up transportation in a different way? Um, if you look at any market where it ends, most people tend to disregard that because they, oh, these people are too poor, or they, 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 they don't want our services, or uh, like Herb Kelleher told me when I was talking about Southwest Airlines that the government did a study saying that People didn't want to fly, like normal people like you and me didn't want to fly. Only rich people and business, uh, uh, business people wanted to fly. But that was just wrong. Uh, and it turns out if you only survey rich people who can afford to fly on airplanes, then, yeah, that's probably what the survey is going to tell you. But if you're looking for opportunity, look for people who are being excluded and try to bring them in. I love that. So what... If I'm an entrepreneur right now and I'm starting a business in this new normal, uh, what are three pieces of advice you have for me? So the first piece of advice would be understand if you're being an entrepreneur or being a business person. So business people are more likely to be successful and make money because you're doing something that's already been done before. So a business would be uh, copying another successful business. And that's how business is done. That's how money is made. If you're being an entrepreneur, then you're doing something that hasn't been done and might not work. So it's a lot riskier and the rules almost 
totally change in that world. So understand which world you're in. One of the mistakes I made when I was uh, first starting out was that I had a lot of friends who you know, were also supposedly entrepreneurs um, and we, they called themselves entrepreneurs and I called them entrepreneurs, but it turns out they were business people because they had standardized problems. And whenever I took my set of problems and talked to them, they never matched up. And I didn't understand why my businesses never seemed to fit the model. And I didn't, because it was because I was doing something differently. So that's sort of thing one. Second thing I would say is recognize your personal weaknesses and find the right partner. Um, in my case, Jack was a perfect partner for Square. Um, you know, a lot of the things he's good at are things that I'm terrible at and, you know, vice versa. Um, and the, the, the final thing is I would say, you know, understand why you're doing it. Uh, the motivation is really important because if you're doing it for money or you're doing it for notoriety or anything that is fairly easily accessible, then you're probably going to burn out because it turns out that money and fame and, and, and sort of the, 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 the flashy stuff is they're very weak motivators because once you have a little bit of money, um, you'll quit. Uh, or once you get a little bit of notoriety, what I don't know. I, but I think the best motivator, at least for me, is a problem you care deeply about solving. So uh, right now I'm doing a bunch of work with diapers because I think diapers are sort of the start of poverty and I think we can make a better diaper. And I know nothing about diapers. So I'm spending a bunch of time doing diapers and uh, designing new glassware. Those are my two problems I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm in the studio making new glass and designing diapers and like maybe fancy drinking glasses, it's not a problem that people care about, but I just wanted to make something cool out of glass. And so I'm back in the studio now. What responsibility do you think companies and corporations have in affecting change for social justice? So I think it's super important and it's an issue that I've been working at personally for, for most of my career. Um, I actually am today on Del Mar Boulevard in St. Louis, which is one of the most racially divided uh, streets in the world. Um, if you look at the demographics on the north side and the south side, they're radically different. Um, and I think it's important for businesses uh, to start working on both sides. Um, so for instance, the studio I'm in is on one side of the street and the makerspace that I run is on the other side of the street. Um, I got married on that side of the street and my wedding reception was literally in this building on this side of the street. And I think tying these things together uh, is super important. Um, one of the things I'm super proud of is uh, what LaunchCode has been able to do. Uh, LaunchCode is a nonprofit that we started here in St. Louis to give free education to people. Um, and it's open to all, but what we found is that uh, underrepresented minorities, uh, particularly women uh, and people of color, are coming into launch code in disproportionately high numbers because they've never had the opportunity. It wasn't that they couldn't be good programmers, it was that nobody gave them the chance and they're kicking ass out in the marketplace um, with this free education. And it's just it just shows me the potential that's possible. So I think a lot of businesses need to open up their minds to you know what a good programmer looks like, what a good uh, you know marketing candidate looks like. What you know just be a little less rooted in what you think that person looks like. And a lot of CEOs uh, and executives have typically shied away from talking about these issues. Do you think that's changing? Yeah, I mean, so. Uh, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has has really raised consciousness, and it's it's well overdue. I mean, um, I just think that it's just time to wake up. 
That's amazing. Okay, Jim, final question. This is going to be in the history books. Is 2020 a good year to start a business? Yes, absolutely. This is a year of chaos. It is a year when we are being forced to rethink the things that have always worked for us. And that is a great time for something new. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jim. I learned a lot. Thanks so much. 